Welcome to the Iowa Idea Podcast. Join host Matt Arnold for in-depth conversations with artists, designers, entrepreneurs, and civic leaders as he explores how they approach their craft and represent a modern version of the Iowa Idea. This podcast tells the stories of Iowa natives, transplants, and friends who demonstrate the Iowa idea in the 21st century. I need to focus on what's actually working. In this episode of the Iowa Idea podcast, I sit down with Chris Gersbeck. Chris is a producer, publicist, and writer based in Queens, New York. He currently produces and makes regular appearances on comedy podcasts, Dave Hill History Fluffer, Dave Hill's Podcasting Incident, and So You're Canadian with Dave Hill, the latter two of which are on the Maximum Fun Network. Chris also produces numerous live comedy events throughout New York City under the banner of Dumb Industries and handles publicity for several popular podcasts and comedians, including Frank Conniff and Trace Ballou, who you may know as the Mads from Mystery Science Theater. Chris and I talk about the strange incident that led to the end of Ernest Borgnine and Ethel Merman's 32-day marriage, we dig into show business urban legends, as well as Chris's journey from comedian to podcast producer and publicist. It was an honor to have Chris join the podcast. I really appreciated his perspective and the fact that Chris wore a University of Iowa t-shirt for the recording. Thanks, Chris, for joining me. I hope you enjoy the episode. Chris, it's a pleasure to have you here on the Iowa Idea Podcast. Thanks so much uh, for joining me. If you don't mind, uh, for our listeners, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, my name is Chris. I'm a I still struggling to figure out how to describe myself, what my profession is, but I've been settling just on producer lately. Um, I produce a few podcasts. I do publicity for a bunch of podcasts. Um, yeah, and I just, uh, I mean, my main, I think, you know, the way you've, you've gotten in touch with me is through Dave Hills, Comedian Dave Hills podcasts. And, um, I do a lot of work with him. We, we do a couple shows together. We've, we've, uh, collaborated a bunch. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's, uh, I don't know. In a nutshell, I guess that's what you could say. I do. Right, right on. And uh, you just hit a milestone with your production work on Dave's uh, podcast, right? Hit uh, that you guys have done a hundred episodes together. Yeah, we. I and I only just realized that today. It was like it's been almost two years that we've. Uh, I, I approached him about revamping his podcast, Dave Hill's podcasting incident, because um, he was doing the goddamn Dave Hill show on WFMU for a while, but that was. It was a, I think it was really hard for him to get himself out to Jersey City. He lives in Manhattan, so it's like hard for him to get out to Jersey City every Monday and do a three-hour radio show, get home at like 2 a.m. and just feel exhausted for like the rest of the week, basically. So I was like, why don't you just do it from your home? And he's like, oh, is there like, can we do that? And I'm like, yeah, I'll just I'll bring my mics over. <laughs> we'll start doing it. And uh and then, yeah, so that's, that was like, I can't believe it. So it's been almost two years of that. So it's coming up. There's been a, we just put out episode 182 today. Um, so, yeah, so it's almost, I think 185 will be the 100th episode that I've right. produced. Right on. And I know one, one of the things, a uh, more recent episode, uh, it just, it's, it cracks me up every time I think of it. One of the topics that came up was the uh, marriage and divorce between Ethel Merman and <laughs> Ernest Borgnine. 
Yeah, I've been obsessed with that since it happened, since uh, we recorded that on Monday. Um, I don't, who, someone commented about it. I never, I mean, I never heard about any of this before. Um, I want to go back and credit whoever brought this to our attention. But yeah, apparently Ernest Borgnine and Ethel Merman were married for 32 days and it ended after, after Ernest Borgnine farted under sheets and pulled the sheets over her head and uh commonly referred to as a dutch oven and that came up <laughs> in the, in the so, most recent episode so they 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 did not their marriage did not survive the dutch oven test did not no <laughs> so uh after that episode i was i was talking to one of my friends because uh, i was talking to so many people about it because i couldn't stop uh laughing and I think I was, I was crying a couple times because I was just laughing yeah, so hard yeah, yeah. at it. And a friend of mine told me, and I hope this is true, is that Ethel Merman then had a, in her autobiography, she had a, a chapter on the marriage to Ernest Borgnine. And it was just one blank page. Yeah, I read that too. <laughs> so, I love... Um... I love sort of like showbiz urban legends like that. Like I remember for a long time being obsessed with, uh, I don't know if you ever heard this, but the actor who played Mr. Belvedere, apparently during production of some episode, he like literally sat on his own testicles and like seriously injured himself. And they had to like, they had to stop production of the show for a little bit uh, while he recovered. But I just love those kinds of like, oh yeah, did you ever hear about how so-and-so did this crazy thing? And like the Ernest Borgnine Dutch oven falls squarely in that category of like just hilariously unbelievable, you know, urban legends in, in Hollywood. So this isn't, this isn't quite Hollywood, but I, I know one time years, years ago I was, uh, you know, kind of exchanging those urban legends with friends. Right. And so then it's like, oh yeah, have you heard the one about blank? And mm -hmm. In this case, in my uh, hometown of Rockford, Illinois, I had, so you, you heard about the one where Santa Claus was coming in to parachute for the mall opening and the parachute didn't open. And as I was talking to her, there was just horrified looks like, so no, not, not urban legend. And then I ended up doing, uh, doing research on it and contacted the library and they sent me news articles, but yeah, there was a, it really, so that really did happen. It really did happen. It was a Thanksgiving shopping weekend. A new mall is open and is their, their promotion, uh, a, uh, a skydiver in a Santa suit. Uh, oh. And what had happened is the, uh, unfortunately, uh, the, uh, the skydiver had had a leg injury uh, uh, a few weeks before. So he, he had braces uh, on uh, his legs and he also he had smoke grenades to make it easier to, to track, but his chute got wrapped up around the leg braces. <laughs> oh, no. So all these kids that are waiting to see Santa and uh, my, <laughs> my dad used to be a firefighter in Rockford and, and it was before his time, but he said, yeah, when he came aboard, uh, he got to talk to the crew that had to kind of dig Santa out of somebody's front yard. Oh my God. That reminds me of like the Simpsons where like, <laughs> like Homer Simpson was playing Krusty the Clown, like Krusty's trying to franchise out and like, <laughs> it's like all these kids waiting at like the opening of a Krusty burger and he, Homer just like comes like flying down. <laughs> it sounds exactly what it, Santa Claus just like, and all these kids like crying. Oh God. Yeah, it was, and it was, it was a fun research project, calling up a research librarian and yeah. asking, and yeah, somebody was on it and <laughs> sending me the news articles 
And somewhere I still have the very, you know, kind of early 60s-esque kind of cartoonish drawing, like come see uh, Skydiving Santa. And it was like, uh, you know, like Santa coming in from the cosmos kind of vibe to it. So it was a big, big promotion. And uh, at one point, whoever was in charge of that, that production, like ran out and told everybody it's okay. That was just Santa's helper. The real Santa will be Uh. here. That's actually so, pretty good. That's a pretty good cover for that, though. <laughs> so your your kind of big kind of company umbrella label is Dumb Industries. How did you mm-hmm. how did you, how did you get to Dumb Industries? And uh, um, what's so your goal with I, Dumb? When I first started producing, when I first got into comedy, I started uh, in stand up and at this place QED in Astoria, Queens, which was, you know, a neighborhood I had lived in for like 10 years before that place opened. Um, I was always like a huge comedy fan. And, and then this place opened up in my neighborhood. So I started getting more and more involved in like the actual New York City comedy community, um, doing stand up, but then also producing. And then uh, the first show i ever produced was a show called everything is dumb and it was just you know it was like a stand-up variety show um i think dave actually did like the second edition of that or something which was i think i think that might have been the first time i even i even met him in person um but I, so i did that show that was like a stand-up showcase and then a friend of mine and i started producing this uh essentially what you know mystery science theater 3000 but you know just live and um that show was called movies are dumb and it was just like kind of you know this whole dumb brand sort of thing just like i was just thinking of like some kind of just like branding type of thing so i was like all right we'll call i first was dumb productions because i was mainly just doing producing and then i started doing more and more publicity and didn't want to give the impression I was producing stuff that I was like only uh, hired to promote and stuff. So I was like, maybe I'll just like call it dumb industries and I'll be like sort of like an umbrella type thing. But that's where, um, yeah, that's where the name comes from. Uh, and I was like, I mean, I just think the word dumb is funny when it's used like comedically, like, uh, it's so dumb. So <laughs> that's where I got it from. I love it. Yeah. Cause I have, I have, I have a friend that one of my favorite, it's just like, he'll, he'll hear some explanation to something and his response, dumb. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. He, he, and it, it, it's something for, for our group of friends just makes us laugh. Like somebody's really into something and his dismissive dumb is also yeah. Yeah, kind of yeah. golden. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of, and I mean, I, you know, it's more of a, a, a branding thing more recently than anything. Like I've been, producing a lot of things for um the past few years but now it's just like i can actually like i feel like you know there is like a real there's a lot of crossover audience between the stuff i do with dave and then also um you know frank conniff and trace you now with the with the mads shows um that we've been doing um so yeah i mean i just i i don't have any interest in like people have asked like why don't you start like a podcast network and like i don't really that's just like a whole other world that I just don't necessarily want to get involved in. Like I want to produce content, not necessarily like distribute, get into like distribution of, of shows and stuff. But, um, but yeah, I mean, overall I'd like to, I just kind of like kind of building like this cool little scene of, especially now with like, you know, there's no one's going out or doing anything. It's very easy to kind of, 
connect like you know it was great having frank and trace come on dave's show on monday and then um i also work with uh the keith and the girl podcast and frank and trace will be on like their game show in a couple weeks so it's just i'm finding more and more it's more just about like just connecting people with each other and just trying to build something out of it so I was going to add it with, and given like kind of all of the changes since March, right? Like kind of the context of pandemic, um, were you doing, were you, were you still doing standup as well uh, leading up no. to that time? No, I haven't done standup in a, in a while. Um, I mean, I, any standup will tell you like that they're not very good at it. I truly don't think I was very good at it. And uh you know, I, I enjoyed doing it, but I also just, once I started producing more and more and started doing, you know, more behind the scenes work on podcasts and stuff, I just realized how much more, like, I just get more out of that. Like it's more, I feel better about myself, you know, producing a great show versus like maybe doing an okay set on a bar show and then coming off and then you know just like completely bombing and i'm just feeling like shit for weeks i was like this isn't (laughs) healthy for me i need to i need to focus on like what actually is working and you know producing seemed to be working a lot more so i just i just kind of refocused my energy there and you know in in especially in new york city because it's such a or you know at least it was such a a huge hub for stand-up um is there's like a lot of there seems to be like a lot of pressure among comics to like do as many sets as possible like in a week like it's almost like a competition like oh how many open mics did you hit up this week and you know i i love stand up as an art form um i just don't have the energy to like work that hard at like getting up on stage and you know a lot of times even if you know, like you're a well-known comic, you might be performing for like five people <laughs> in a bar. Um, so yeah, I mean, just, I just, uh, I just like, I just like being behind the scenes more, more and more lately. Yeah. Given, given the kind of the change, especially right in New York city with, with pandemic and that those venues not available to people, mm-hmm. uh, what are some of the biggest kind of surprises to you in the work that you're doing now during pandemic that you might not have considered prior to March? Um, oh, man, that's a good question. I, I'm in like the very fortunate position where, this pandemic has actually like it's offered me quite a few opportunities that I, I'm not sure would have happened had things just stayed the same um, these past few months, which you know I feel I feel kind of guilty about in, in a weird way. It's like because uh, like I'm doing these shows now with um, with Frank Conniff and, and Trace Boyu from uh, Mystery Science Theater and they were you know it came about i knew frank because he and i produced a show uh at qed together um and he always did those movies or dumb shows whenever he could uh and so like a couple months into the pandemic he emailed me he was like hey is there any way to we could like stream a movie and just riff and just do it online and like at that point my only experience with zoom was like if you try to play a video it was incredibly choppy and it just right. wasn't it's not it wasn't like a platform that we could feasibly do this so I was honest with them I was like I don't think that the technology is quite there to do it and then started digging more and more and I don't know if zoom just 
happened to improve that feature quite a bit, but we realized that we were able to do it as long as like the video wasn't super high quality. It played, you know, it's not perfect, but it plays, it's definitely watchable. Yeah. Um, so once we, you know, once we realized that it was, it was doable, then we put the tickets on sale and it was just like, people went crazy over it. Um, and that's the kind of thing, like everyone's stuck at home right now. There's no live entertainment going on and people still love these kinds of shows and they don't have any way to experience them. Um, and I think Frank had, has told me that they always discuss doing something like this, but there was never any sense of urgency. So it never, you know, there was never any real reason to push to do this, but now it's like these guys, they made their living touring and, and doing these shows. And uh, this is like really keeping them afloat, which is great. Um, but I, again, like, I don't think that this opportunity would have happened right now had it not been out of necessity. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm super grateful for that. And then I also got to work, um, on the state, uh, they did a big reunion show on zoom a couple months ago. And, uh, you know, because I work with the, the risk podcast and Kevin Allison stuff, they recommended me to, to handle the publicity for that. Um, and that's the kind of, I don't, you know, the state might've done a reunion had there not been a pandemic, but yeah. it's, uh, so like, you know, in a weird way, I'm like, oh man, like, am I, am I getting involved with these things because I'm the guy to do it? Or is it just like out of necessity and like, would, where would I be had, you know, no venues closed? Would I still be just producing bar shows once a month <laughs> or like what? It's all, uh, it's all very, it's all very strange. Well, I like with the uh, maybe a silver lining of all this uh, is that you are able to get you know, geography isn't the issue anymore, right? So yeah. even like like, you said, like for the state, it's not getting the, the cast in the same room at the same time. <clears throat> Yeah. And then also from a sales perspective, right, is that it's, it's just not people that are near that venue for that particular day. So, right. Yeah, as, right. A, fan, as a fan, one of the things I've been surprised with, with on the music front, uh, some different platforms, uh, but like uh, Stage It, uh, like Rhett yeah, Miller yeah. doing shows. Yeah, I saw Rhett Miller was doing those, yeah. Yeah, uh, and those, those have been fun. Uh, the Hideout out of Chicago has been experimenting with different platforms. Uh, so seeing some of the people that usually play in Chicago when they're, you know, or play at the Hideout when they're in Chicago. So music, it's been interesting. Yeah. Uh, the hard part, though, is sometimes, too, it's, it's, it's like there's almost so much now to compete with as well. Yeah, as the, yeah. Like you said, because these are folks that used to make their money touring. Not, now they're not touring, and everybody's still trying to get some attention. So yeah. Uh, I think I saw Got It by Voices did some big uh, live stream concert, right? Um, yeah, I mean, people are just. I, I think I, I think when Rhett was on Dave's podcast, um, you know, it, and I didn't really consider this until I heard him say it, but he was like, you know, musicians and performers in general are, you know, they were the first to get canceled. Uh, all of their all their income was like the first to vanish and they're probably going to be the last to be able to come back because you know how do you how do you really do a, a, a like a social distancing concert right. it's just really just like not possible and it's not it's not going to be anywhere near the same of you know you know, if you go to see like a band like Screaming Females, like how are you going to stay six feet apart from everyone? It's just like, you know, it's impossible. 
Yeah, I know one of my favorite venues uh, here in Iowa City is The Mill, and it had, uh, unfortunately, it closed because of pandemic. So even the, like the, the venues where people would play, but part of the reason you went to a show there was because it was, you know, a small room, really intimate. Uh, yeah. And uh, so it's like, if, even if it was, if everybody was to keep six feet, I think you could sell yeah. <laughs> maybe 12 tickets. Yeah, no, I know. It's like, you know, that, that venue QED in Queens, it's normal capacity is only 73. So I think they're, they've been doing backyard shows because uh, they, they're, they, you know, they have a backyard space. Um, but I think they're only able to sell something like 20 tickets total. And it's, you know, it breaks my heart knowing these venues are struggling so much and they're really just not getting, they're not getting any assistance. Uh, you know, it's sad. It's just small businesses are going to be the first to, to fail and the venues, especially any kind of theater. It's just, uh, yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy to think like where the industry is going to be like in a year from now. Right. Um, yeah, I just, I hope for the best, but so what are you looking forward to the most when, if there's ever an all clear on pandemic and you can, can go out? Um, I don't, I mean, I like, I really miss the community, like being, you know, I, I really love the comedy community in New York city and I really just miss the running into people and just hanging out and, um, you know, I, I'm lucky enough that my, my, you know, my wife and I, we've been quarantined this entire time. Um, and we're, you know, getting along <laughs> really, really well. And, uh, the only other people we've seen have been like my parents and, uh, and my brother and his, my niece and nephew, um, which is, you know, it's obviously great, but it's, I really do miss like just hanging out with people. Um, you know, Zoom's been, it's interesting, like with, with someone like Dave, who, you know, I would see, I think maybe six months prior to the pandemic, we were at that point pretty much doing all everything remotely anyway, but it's like, you know, I miss being able to like, just go to Dave's apartment and then just hang out, record an episode, you know, and then go home. It was like more of like an event rather than like, all right, we're hopping on the zoom call at one o'clock. We'll be done by two. And right. You know, um, yeah, I think I just miss being in the same room as some people. <laughs> as, uh, it's yeah, it's just a it's a weird thing, and I I don't like how I'm getting used to, like I'm feeling more and more like because I'll you know I'll I'll get on Zoom calls with Dave like three four times a week or something. So I feel like in the back of my head I'm like oh yeah I've been hanging out with Dave a lot, but it's like yeah I haven't been in the same room as him in in months and months, and it's just such a weird. It's hard. I don't like that I'm getting used to it in a way, you know, you're not worried that you're going to start wearing uh, like Kleenex boxes for shoes or anything like no. that. <laughs> I've come close, but luckily, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think I my wife and I realized very early on, like we have to have like an actual routine here or like, we can't just like stop bathing or, you know, <laughs> stop getting out of the apartment. So we very, I think like a few weeks into it, like we have to be exercising like every day or else we we're going to fall into a bad place. And we've really, we've stuck to that. We started doing, uh, we found like old Billy Blanks typo videos on YouTube <laughs> and we've just been doing those like every day. And it's been, it's been so helpful, I think for our, our mental health. 
So are you, are, are you, like you said, you're quarantining at the, I mean, but like how, how extreme are you, are you adventuring anywhere like in the, in the boroughs? Are you like, do you? No, like- no. My wife works in Manhattan twice a week now. Um, she's lucky she's been able to work from home three days out of the week and then she has to go, go in twice a week. Um, so she's been going on the subway. I, I have not been on the subway since March. Um, the only places I've been, I've went, you know, my, my parents have a car and they, they live upstate and they will drive down and pick us up and we'll go see my brother for like a couple hours and just kind of be very careful about <laughs> what we touch and stuff. <laughs> um, but no, I've not, I've, you know, I was already kind of a, a hermit, so it's not too big of a difference to me. Um, so yeah, it's, 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 you know, it's been an adjustment like for everyone. So I want to tell folks can't, uh, can't see on the, on, on the podcast, but I do want folks to know that you are wearing a Iowa Hawkeyes t-shirt right now. I am. Yeah. My first t-shirt I just happened to grab when I woke up this morning. So yeah, got this at an airport. Uh, Musk or not Muscatine? What's the uh? What's Mo, the was it Moline Airport? It's Moline, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which is a very tiny airport. Um, yeah, <laughs> that I've I've been in quite a few times. So, yeah. so, so you're talking about like kind of post pandemic or things return to somewhat of normal, like just going out and hanging out with folks again, and maybe the the surprise like for i guess for me it's kind of that surprise like you're hanging out somewhere and then you see another friend like you weren't expecting to see because yeah for, for me it's like i have a group of guys that we're still doing we're doing like a virtual happy hour on thursday night mm-hmm. um but it's it's not the same right no. And, no. and there's no surprises right it's like right. we already know who's going to be on the call or not <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and those have been fun. Like, I've I've actually really learned to embrace this kind of technology. Before this, uh, you know, like doing like any kind of video conferencing was just like, oh, do we have do we have to do it this way? And like now, like I actually really I look forward to like just seeing someone else in front of me and having like a you know making eye contact and having like a normal conversation. It's like. Uh, but I also, I love like all these, like I'm going to a, a talk next week um, that they're doing virtually about uh, the movie, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. It was, it's like, would I have really gone out of my way to do this pre-pandemic? Probably not. You know, if I saw it was happening nearby, I might, but I, I really look forward to those things at like night, like tuning into something that I know, like just a very small select group of people are also, are also on. It just feels very you know, it, that's like the closest I feel like I can get to like a sense of community right now are these kinds of things. So jumping back to your connection to, uh, uh, Frank and trace. So mm-hmm. it, that was, it was through Frank, but I, I guess the, uh, the podcast that you guys did, uh, with Dave, I, they were phenomenal guests. It was yeah. just, and yeah. I really appreciated both their, their approach to um, also what's kind of what's in bounds and what's out of bounds when it comes to films and commentary and like irony versus an earnestness. But it was, it was what I really appreciated was that here's a very thoughtful side of what sounds like, you know, like, cause on the surface it's, yeah, it's fun. And it's, but it's not in a mean spirit, like the way they're treating movies and almost their love of, of the tingler was mm-hmm. that alone was just gold to listen to. Yeah. And that, you know, 
I feel like a lot of people hear like, oh, these guys make fun of bad movies. Um, and, you know, we did, the first one we did was Glenn or Glenda, the Ed Wood movie. Um, and then, you know, after like, it is, it's not a well-made movie, but like <laughs> hearing them talk about it more and more, it's like, yeah, but what makes it fun to watch and makes it fun for, to hear these two guys critique it um, is just the fact that Ed Wood was really trying to make a, a good movie and he was, his intentions were so good that that's what, that's what makes it enjoyable. And I think that's, it's similar with the, the Tingler, you know, it's not, it's, you know, it's dated and it's, it's a fifties sci-fi horror movie, but it's really like, it's a good, like you bought, like you're entertained. Like it's a good, like, that's what a good movie is. So, um, but yeah, no, I think, I think I've heard Frank specifically say that there, it's like a misunderstanding that, that they hate these movies and that's why they're making fun of them. It's like, no, they love the passion that was put into these movies. And, you know, if it didn't work, that's, it's funny, you know, it's like, they're, they're not they're not like saying like oh what the fuck were you thinking when you directed this it's more just like it's like all right you did this okay let's let's talk about it you know it's um yeah their their perspective on film is it's pretty fascinating and frank especially i know is a huge lover of film like he's a huge film buff like he people just assume that he only likes bad movies and he he just he really loves film like he loves good he likes watching good movies um personally i i've found myself more entertained by bad movies and like even stuff like the room like i you know i like spectacular failures like that like that i almost get a bigger kick out of that than watching a movie like the godfather which i i love and respect and think it's like one of the greatest movies ever made but i've probably seen the room more times than i've seen the godfather <laughs> so, do you ever dig into like the the old trauma productions like uh, toxic avenger and yeah some of those, those movies yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah any of the um yeah lloyd kaufman stuff is is great i mean that's that's almost like a whole different genre to um where it's not like you know they're in on the joke but it's also they're not in on the joke in a way that like sharknado is like they're just those movies are really trying to be bad where i feel like trauma like they just have their whole own thing going on where it's like <laughs> right trashy and gross and funny and, and goofy um, so uh one of the one of the other and I apologize the name's escaping me. One of the other things that was great I thought with the the conversation with Frank and Trace was uh, who now who is the director slash producer for uh, Tingler? Uh, William Castle. Yeah, just the almost the showmanship in production of what yeah. he was like, <laughs> like basically juicing the, some of the seats so people would get a little bit of a shock. Yeah, it was having uh, people pass out. Yeah, eight they, actors. <laughs> I really liked it because like, I, I mean that I connect with a lot because in produce, when I first started producing standup, I, you know, it's, it's hard to produce a standup show and, you know, get five, six performers to show up on time and, you know, just do 15 minutes. Like it sounds like it's easy, but it's actually, there's, you know, there's a lot of work in making sure that like that stuff flows smoothly. Um, but when I first started producing shows, it was like all these stand-up showcases, like, yeah, they just book five comics, they have a host, and then that's it. And like I always wanted to approach it with more like, 
like, what can we do to make this like extra special? Um, you know, and with everything is dumb. I had friends who would like make little videos that we'd play in between stand-up sets. We would do like kind of like wraparound sketch segments. Like I, I really like making like a show out of it and like having like silly gimmicks and William Castle clearly had that same, like he just <laughs> loved the idea of, I think with House on Haunted Hill, which was the movie he did uh, with Vincent Price right before The Tingler, he had like a skeleton that would fly, like go through the rows of the theaters uh, <laughs> at a certain point during the movie. It's just like, it's so silly and goofy, but it's like, it's, uh, I just, I love stuff like that. And his, his sort of like pension for that stuff is really inspiring. I think um, we were talking about like, how can we, like, can we develop some kind of app like for someone's phone that so that like, we can like start shocking them <laughs> from like an app or something while they're watching at home, <laughs> which I don't know. Might, there's gotta be some, there's gotta be some way we could make someone's phone vibrate remotely, but I don't, I don't know how that, how that would work, but I would like to do something like that in the future yeah because that was like a big thing in 50s and 60s right how immersive might we make this experience because you know early film just the spectacle of picture moving picture was that was enough novelty and then then adding sound then adding color and i just felt like it's like okay how do we keep pushing this to be a little bit more exciting and yeah and yeah, well, John Waters did. I didn't know this until recently, but uh, for polyester, he had a thing called um, Smell-O-Vision, which I remember because um, they showed it like in Comedy Central once, uh, and there was like a they would like you could you could actually like think request from Comedy Central like a little the little scratch off thing, and like you'd scratch the number at a certain point, and you you'd smell what you're supposed to be smelling in the movie. <laughs> but I only read recently John Waters got that idea from The Tingler, like doing these kind of like high concept like interactive things for movies i love it i love it um so a a question for you too regarding um kind of your your journey moving away from comedy moving more into production how'd you even get into comedy in the first place um so qed opened um it was uh and you know in astoria and i lived i lived in astoria for like 10 years prior to that and there was just nothing, you know, Astoria, it, it's in Queens. It's, it's a neighborhood that's mostly known for its restaurants. Like there's just a ton of bars and restaurants there, but there was never any dedicated comedy space. Like there was no, you know, there was no like real community, like artistic community, like a hub for that kind of creativity. Um, and then I think it was 2014, uh, Cambry Cruz, who's the owner of QED, and had you know she's she's married to Christian Finnegan, who's a, a pretty well-known stand-up comedian. They had lived in Astoria for a long time as well, and they realized they were both performers, but they never performed in Queens. You know, they would do like sets at bar shows every now and then, but they really wanted to build a space that they themselves could perform at, but also that neighborhood in general. Like, there's just like within the vicinity, like the two block vicinity of QED, there's like 25 comedians. And a lot of them are like regulars at Comedy Cellar. They've been on Comedy Central. It's 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 kind of crazy how they all just sort of ended up in the same area. But, uh, but anyway, they opened QED and I found out about it uh, from like a Facebook post. I was, um, I'm a huge fan of uh, The Best Show with Tom Sharpling and saw that 
uh, that Tom was going to be there for some podcast taping. I was like, really, this is happening? Like, I can walk to this and Tom Sharp will be there. And we went there and had a great time. And um, I think that was like in November of 2014. And then my wife got me a stand-up class uh, at QED that was being taught by um, this comedian, Carol Montgomery, who's been around for... 30 years she's hilarious she's uh she's gotten recently got a couple of specials on showtime where it's her hosting um all these women in comedy who are over 40 um and it's just like it's such a a great show she's amazing and it was like a six-week course with her and then there was like a like a graduation show and um she was just really you know i just I had, I loved comedy. I loved the idea of writing jokes. Um, I wasn't, you know, at the time, just such a huge fan of, of Dave Hills actually, um, just to stand up and just his, his show and everything. Like he was just so inspirational to me. And I wanted to like start writing jokes in that vein of just sort of, not necessarily like one liners, but just sort of absurd little things. And, um, and so I started just, I wrote like some jokes in the first class I told them and like people were, I was so fucking nervous and people were just, they were, they thought that they were funny and Carol was so encouraging. She was like, yeah, like, you know, clearly not super comfortable being on stage, but your jokes are like really well written and they're funny and you should, you should really keep doing this. And I just stuck with it. Um, pushed really hard, just doing as many open mics as I could. And, um, and then just meeting more and more people. And then through producing a stand-up showcase, I was just like, you know, I had no fear in reaching out to people. Like I, I didn't know Dave in person. We'd exchanged some emails, but I think I just emailed him. I was like, Hey, I'm doing this show at QED. I was like, do you want to come and do a 15 minute set? Like, I just didn't, you know, to me, it was never like, um, like, Oh no, this show isn't big enough. I'm going to be embarrassed if I invite him out to this. Was like, I just need to go for it. Yeah, um, and so I got him on like the second show, and then I think the third or fourth show, I you know I reached out to Todd Barry, not expecting any kind of response, <laughs> and he was like, "Yeah, I'll do it, sure." <laughs> and then from there, it was just like I think once I booked Todd Barry on the show, so many people were emailing me. It's like, "How'd you get Todd on the show?" And I was like, "I emailed him. I don't know." Like to me, it would just seem like a like a no brainer. I was like, if I want if I want to have him on the show, I should just reach out to him there's not a lot of um i i feel like especially in stand-up it's like if you can just promise them that there's going to be a good audience and it doesn't have to be a hundred people it could just be even 20 people or whatever like if you can promise a comedian like good crowd then they will most likely you know they'll do it as long as it's not like they have to take you know a train anywhere or like a 50 dollar yeah. taxi or something right um, but i just was like sort of fearless in approaching people that I just wanted to, I wanted to work with. Um, What's the worst they can say, right? (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. They'll say no, or they won't respond. And that's, you know, (laughs) it's not, it's not like it's embarrassing to like, you know, just email. Damn you, Chris, I'm coming after you. (laughs) So, um, but honestly, I mean, Dave was really, uh, I had written him emails before just, you know, just telling him how much I, I liked his show and how much I appreciated the focus he would play. I think it was, it was after Robin Williams died. Dave did this, um, this episode just 
and he was just very frank about his own struggles with depression and medication and stuff. And he was just like, if you're ever, he's like, if you don't feel like you have anyone to talk to, like you can just email me. It was like, I'll, I'll talk to you. And he just was so earnest about that. And I think after that episode, I just sent him a quick email. I was like, Hey man, like this really, this really, you know, spoke to me and I really appreciate you being so open about and honest just about your own struggles with depression. And, um, and he wrote back like 20 minutes later or something. Yeah. It was like, Oh, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. And it was just, uh, it was just like really inspiring to like, you know, I think people prop up, you know, people that they look up to and, you know, they don't even have to necessarily be famous or anything, but you kind of expect like, they're too busy to respond to you. Yeah. And that's just not the case. I find a lot of times, um, you know, I, I've never had a bad experience emailing someone, you know, it, the worst case scenario, I won't get a response to them, but a lot of times I'll get a response like six months later being like, Oh, sorry, I missed this. Can't do it. But you know, keep me in mind for whatever else. Um, yeah. I just find you can't, you know, you just have to kind of know what you want try to, you know, just put yourself out there. The worst, just remind yourself the worst thing that's going to happen is they'll say no or won't respond. And it's, you know, got really nothing to lose. When you were putting on those shows, I'm kind of curious, you know, not, not like from a, a super detail perspective, but the general business model, is it, are you, were you guaranteeing these guys, uh, men and women perform just guys generally, but the mm -hmm. the performers are you guaranteeing? Is it a split? I'm I'm just always curious on kind of the business model side. So with the the shows at QED, you know, I don't think there's ever I don't think there was ever a show at QED that charged more than like ten dollars. Like that was the standard. Yeah. Um, and so if you're producing a show there, even if you sell out the place, you know, the most right. money you're going to make after the door split is probably like $300 or something. And if you, you know, you made that much money, you probably had some comedians that you should, you know, pay some money to, but um, yeah, it's some like Todd Barry, I would just say like, Hey, I can guarantee you a hundred bucks and I'll get you a car to and from. Yeah. And that, that was enough, you know, if you make it easy for someone like, like him, then he'll just, he'll, he'll probably do it as long as he has nothing else going on that night. Um, are you still, sorry, are you still in touch with Todd? Um, not, not, I mean, I'm not like friends with him or anything. Okay. Um, Dave, Dave is pretty good friends with him. So I hear about him a lot. Um, okay. Yeah. Cause Todd, Todd Barry, there's something about Todd's delay. I've seen him live a couple times and at the end of the show, I couldn't, I couldn't even talk. I was, cause I was laughing so hard. I was crying. I yeah, think his, there's awesome. something about his delivery that is just phenomenal. Mm -hmm uh yeah he's definitely like top five of all time for me he's just so he's so funny um and i'm lucky i've gotten to meet him a couple of times and he's been super friendly um but uh but yeah i mean it, it's weird in new york city there's so many comedians and there's so many really great comedians uh who have to perform every night and once you realize that even like the big clubs like comedy seller or the stand um, they spot pay for a stand up, you know, is not very high. It's yeah. like, <laughs> it's, um, I think, uh, uh, I don't know if you know, comedian Ted Alexandro, he's been at doing stand up for a long time and he was actually really instrumental in raising the spot pay from like, from like $40 
like which is what it was for like 20 years or something to like 80 dollars, i think to what it is now um and that was like very controversial at the time so it's like you know the, the real money in stand-up is going on the road like jim gaffigan tours theaters and stuff like that's where and even just road work like outside of new york city um you know even a comedian that's not super well known can make like a thousand bucks doing like a headlining set at a club outside of new york city yeah in new york city it's just like such a different story like they just you know you could probably make a living as a stand-up if you're doing five sets a night um but it's not it's 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 always interesting to me like how little very famous people will make doing stand-up in in new york city <laughs> it's yeah I, a saturated I, place i feel that way sometimes with music too and there are certain musicians that i know and just i think the world of them and have to imagine that they're you know they've, they've received a lot of money and then you hear about the side jobs that they have yeah. or you know that uh it just friends of mine we, we were talking about like even like bob mold who's been doing that you know for for years and years and we just were talking about a story recently where he was talking about the struggles of replacing his iphone and <laughs> he shouldn't he shouldn't have those problems right? no he definitely shouldn't no um yeah i think yeah it's it's weird how um yeah just the way we prop these people up and it's like they're just like humans trying to survive like the rest of us it's not really any different especially like musicians who at this point the only way to make money right now is on the road or licensing out your music um you know there's there's uh i feel like there's sort of like the sensationalism to being a rock star and it's like if if you're lucky enough to be you know touring arenas or whatever then like yeah you're probably doing well but like the typical artist who is playing you know 500 seat theaters on tour is not making a ton of money you know it's right. um it sucks uh because these people definitely deserve a lot more but i don't know so question for you, uh, so all my guests, I kind of like dig in a little bit on advice, either good advice that you've received uh, or uh, stealing from Austin Kleon's book, Steal Like an Artist. He, he claims when you're giving advice, you're just talking to your younger self. So is there good right. advice you've received or is there advice that you'd give that you wish you would have known earlier in your career? Um, I would say the best advice I've gotten was probably from is pretty early on Carol from Carol Montgomery, uh, who I was talking about earlier. I think I, you know, like maybe like six months in or something, I got annoyed because some show didn't book me on something. <laughs> and she was just like, don't worry about what you're getting, you know, like what other people are doing, like stay focused on yourself and do what's best for yourself like don't compare yourself to other people because it's just you're always going to be dissatisfied and you know i would still occasionally get like jealous of other people who were like you know doing stand up the same amount of time that i had been doing it and were seemingly getting better things but um yeah i feel like just not comparing yourself is such a huge thing that's really hard to get over because it's such a comedy especially such a competitive industry um 
and you're friends with a lot of these people. So you, of course, you're going to like be jealous of them sometimes, you know? Um, but yeah, I feel like, you know, keeping your eyes on your own paper, that's probably the best advice I've ever gotten. Um, your eyes on your own paper. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As far as like bad advice, I haven't gotten, I'm lucky enough that no one's been, no one, I, I feel like maybe, like I was saying earlier, there's such, there's so much um, stress on, uh, on stand-up comedians to get out there and do as many sets as possible where I don't necessarily think, I wouldn't recommend that to, to someone else who was, who was just starting out just because there's so many other things you can do and, and be involved in comedy and still be considered a comedian that doesn't involve, you know, doing four soul crushing open mic sets a night. (laughs) You know, I feel like doing, producing a good weekly podcast might be way more beneficial to your stand-up career than, than, you know, doing a million sets of shows that are probably mostly lightly attended. Um, I think, uh, Tim, I don't know if you know who Tim Dillon is. He's a, a stand-up. Um, I don't know. He's, uh, he's super funny, but he's very, you know, his character is sort of like, he's just like a very aggressive guy. But I remember reading a post from him a few years ago that was, I think it was like, it was, he was pretty earnest. He was like, it's like people put way too much focus on how many stand-up sets you're doing. Like if you're a stand-up, like spend your time emailing podcasts, make appearances on podcasts. Like some of these podcasts have thousands and thousands of listeners. It's like, you're way, you have a way better chance of getting known from people hearing you on a podcast than doing some show that has five people in it that, you know, you were dying to get booked on and you show up and there's no one there. And he's like, he's like, do a podcast, do a, do a, a YouTube show, uh, write write a script for a sitcom. Um, start writing monologue jokes. He's like, there's a million other things you can do in this industry. You know, I think stand up is really. Um, I think stand up it seems like really attractive to people because you know it's essentially like you are your own brand. It's you standing on a stage. Uh, you're selling yourself basically, um, and that's you know, that's exciting. Like that's what people want. They want people to know who they are and stuff. But, um, you know, I just feel like in the world of comedy, especially right now, there's just so much else you can do, um, to still be considered a comedian or still be involved in the comedy community that doesn't involve, you know, getting on a mic and doing right. it set over and over. When you're talking about kind of an uh, aggressive character, just one I wanted to check in with you. You familiar with Neil Hamburger? Yeah, I love him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I uh, went to a show. He was playing playing the mill in Iowa City. Went to see him, and uh, it still it was this mind bending thing for me because I I stuck around after went to go chat with. Him. So you know it's it's Greg, but he's still at Neil Hamburger. <laughs> and, yeah, and yeah. Greg's like one of the nicest people you could I've ever heard that. Yeah, cannot be more different. Yeah, I've ever seen him open for Tim and Eric like seven or eight years ago or something, and it was just one of the funniest. Like, like he pulled a knife on the audience at one point. <laughs> it's just like, you know, he did the whole thing where he's holding like six drinks and he like yeah. bows down and they all spill out. Um, so so good, and that kind of almost anti-comedy vibe, or it's like an even darker side of like a Don Rickles. It's so yeah yeah just like this down on his luck kind of guy. But he, 
I feel like people see that kind of character and almost take it the wrong way. Cause like, that's very, like, he's very, he's very, he knows what that character is and how that character acts. It's not like, uh, like, Oh, I'll just go out and just like curse at people. It's like, there's like a a clear, it's not just, I'm going to be a dick and see where this goes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And he has, you know, it's not any like kind of standard setup punchline type material. I mean, of course there is that element of yeah. it, but um, I think, yeah, like I, I really, I love alternative type of comedy like that. I think that a lot of people start getting into alternative comedy thinking like, oh, I don't really have to like prepare for this. I don't have to like write anything. It's like, I'll just go out there and fuck with people. And it's like all these people that have, you know, become popular for doing that kind of thing it's like they they really like this isn't just like uh they're just going up on stage and bullshitting it's like they know what exactly what they're doing right they work at their craft right yeah yeah um so i i don't like when people dismiss all of alternative comedy as just being like oh it's just improv kids like just fucking around it's like that's really not that's not true like they have an act just like you have your act uh yeah yeah and I think one of the things that I, it was, it was at that show for me that I noticed is I actually love when I'm at music events and comedy events, when something is happening that is so provocative that it is going to drive people away. Yeah. Especially comedy shows when it, it it's not people just leaving because uh, maybe this isn't great, but like when it divides an audience, I always love being in those shows. And Neil Hamburger was doing like, you know, I think part of being in Iowa City, which is pretty liberal and usually, but there were things that I just saw people get up and walk out. Like they were offended by what was, was going on. Was he opening for someone? Or was it- no, he, he was headlining and uh, Mike, the entertainer, <laughs> uh, was on tour with him and Mike uh, I can't remember what his real name is but uh, he I'm was not, yeah I'm not familiar with him he was hilarious uh, and so it was it was a great show and then one of the things that kind of tying all these things together when I was talking to uh, to Greg I'm like well, why why was City why the mill and he's like this is one of my favorite rooms to play because it look you just it's like the room gives you a little hug and you know he was like that warm compared to like Neil Hamburger. And, and then he did yeah. say, that's why I told Todd Barry he has to play the mill. <laughs> so, and Todd did uh, years ago, but. Oh, nice. Yeah. So uh, yeah, unfortunately that, that venue has gone. Uh, that sucks. I'm um, actually going to an auction on uh, Sunday. Uh, so I'm masking up to walk through their, their, they're auctioning a bunch of stuff off. I'm just trying to see if like the, like if there's a, a lot that's small enough, like could I get a bar stool or. Right. We're just one of the chairs just so I have that <laughs> from the mill. Right, right. Um, yeah, that just reminded me. I was just talking to my wife about we um my my wife's uh mother was a huge, huge fan of Joan Rivers. And uh so we got to see Joan Rivers quite a bit, like do stand up. Um and she was always so amazing. And we got to meet her backstage a couple times and it was like instantly obvious like she is such a warm friendly caring person and everything you see on stage every time you've seen her on any kind of show it's all been a complete act um it's almost like she was going out of her way to like to be super super friendly but like obviously like very authentic it didn't seem like like that was the act it was like very she made it very obvious like 
like, yeah, that's just like, I just say that shit to make people laugh. Like, it's not what I really, <laughs> it's not like how I really feel. It's a character, you know? That's awesome. Who was the first stand-up that you remember seeing live? Was it Joan Rivers? No, it was uh, George Carlin. Um, wow. When I, yeah, wow. when I was like 14 or 15, he played, um, there's this place in Long Island called the Westbury Music Fair that uh, it's like, it's one of these places that like a lot, it was like very family friendly and like a lot of, I remember going <laughs> to see like plays there when I was like yeah. a little kid. Um, but it's sort of like this, uh, it's one of those stages that's like in the middle of like a round stage in the middle and the whole audience is around them. And um, I loved George Carlin just from like, my parents loved watching him, his HBO specials and stuff. And so they got tickets to see it. That's the first stand-up show I remember, uh, I remember seeing. Oh, that's pretty, pretty that's a lot of street cred on uh, on that one. I don't think a lot of people have seen George Carlin live necessarily, no. but you know, he's been gone for quite some time. So I kind of wear that as a badge of honor. That's awesome. Chris, it was a, a pleasure having you here on the Iowa Idea podcast. Before we go, uh, any uh, can you direct folks to how they can get uh, follow on all the, the great stuff that you're doing at Dumb Industries? Yeah. Um, my website is dumb-industries.com that has, um, you know, links to all the shows I'm producing right now, all the podcasts I'm working on. Um, definitely sign up for the newsletter. I send out like one email a week and usually give away tickets to something. Um, uh, and then on Twitter, I'm at CS Gersbeck, same on Instagram, Facebook. Um, yeah. And, or just email me. I'm always, I, <laughs> Try to respond to every email I get. So, uh, right on. Very, try to be as accessible as possible. Yeah. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. It was an absolute pleasure to uh, to have you here. Thanks, man. So much fun. 